Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome back to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Research extols the benefits of pay transparency for both organisations and employees. It is about much more than compliance with legal requirements. Pay transparency can also drive employee trust, engagement, retention and performance. My guest on this episode, Sarah Reynolds, Chief Marketing Officer at HR platform HiBob, recently gave a compelling talk at Unleash on pay transparency, offering their unique insights into their personal experiences as a non-binary individual. Sarah's perspective on the topic sheds light on the importance of pay transparency, not just for legal compliance, but as a fundamental aspect of promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in the workplace. Throughout our conversation, Sarah sheds light on the intersection of pay transparency with broader workplace issues and the challenges organizations face on this journey, as well as guidance and best practice for implementing transparent pay strategies effectively. From understanding the nuances of pay data to communicating pay structures within an organization, we'll explore the multifaceted aspects of this topic to help HR leaders looking to navigate the complex terrain of pay transparency. So, without further ado, let's get started with a brief introduction from Sarah on their career background and role at HiBob. Sarah, thank you for joining me today on the show. As the first Chief Marketing Officer uh, to be a guest, I'd, I'd love to learn more about your background and responsibilities at HiBob. Sure. So I'm Chief Marketing Officer at a um, an HR technology company called HiBob. HiBob is, um, we're about 800 employees globally, and we have about 3,600 customers. Um, and we describe ourselves a bit jokingly, maybe as HR technology that your employees actually like to use. We, uh, we serve customers who have a really modern people-first approach to their business, um, who often operate in a global mindset, and um, who are midsize, which for us is between about 100 employees and maybe six or 8,000 employees in size. So it can really range. Um, a little bit about me, uh, in addition to being a kick-ass marketer, uh, I am also very proudly non-binary. My pronouns in English are they and them. And um, I bring a lot of focus to uh, DEI and B to my marketing work. Um, I talk and write widely about uh, important topics like pay equity and LGBTQIA plus inclusion, as well as things like how to be more inclusive in your marketing and how to create great HR strategies and HR programs that your employees, especially those in marginalized communities, can take advantage of um, or can see themselves sort of well represented and well supported in your workforce. So thank you so much again for having me. No, it's great to have you on the show, Sarah. And, and I know we're going to dig into some of those topics that you mentioned there as well. And and actually, it's, it's, you, know, you gave some data around um, Hi Bob. You know, you've grown quite significantly in the last year. We had Ronnie Zahavi, the CEO, uh, as a guest on the show towards the end of last year as well. And I think you know you, you've grown from seven hundred to eight hundred people, and from 
3,000 to 3,600 customers. So you're obviously going through quite a lot of growth at the moment. Yes, we are very lucky uh, to be experiencing uh, tremendous growth at HiBob um, and you know to be celebrating along with our customers almost 800,000 employees who use HiBob every single day. We expect to cross more than a million employees who use HiBob in next year sometime. So look out for probably a fun invitation to a great party. We will. We will look out for that. Sarah, as you're probably aware, most of our listeners work in HR. As a chief marketing officer works in the HR and HR technology field, you know, what, what guidance would you offer and what HR can learn from marketing? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know if you know Sapient Insights, but it's a research firm out of the US here, um, led by a woman named Stacey Harris. Uh, she gives the closing keynote at the HR Technology Conference every single year. And one of the things that she she talks about or she surveys the HR community about is how many HR folks feel that they are um, a strategic part of their business. And she actually has a goal of getting this to 55% of respondents saying yes by 2025. That means that today, like around half of the people who who respond to her survey, they say that they don't actually think that their HR department is viewed as strategic by the business. And I think that that is an incredible shame um, because I have had the opportunity to work with some of the best and brightest HR folks on the planet. And I can tell you that just like the best and brightest marketing folks, they are very strategic. And in fact, they have actually access to quite a lot of data and quite a lot of data that their business stakeholders should really care about. But oftentimes the communications gap is not about a lack of data, but it's rather about like the storytelling aspect. And if I think about what HR leaders can maybe learn from marketers, it's not so much about the data itself. You all have lots of data in your organization. You know how many employees you had to replace last year. You know what your employee engagement surveys looked like. You know what your cost of hiring was, you know, an, a tremendous amount of information that in fact impacts the organization's bottom line. What you don't maybe know is how to pull all of that together and tell a great story to the spreadsheet people or the business executives in your organization who don't think about the people questions, the strategic people questions that you answer, but rather do think about things like the PL. So how do you tell a story about PL impact? How do you use something like data around hiring or about turnover? to tell a story about why you should be investing in your people or why you should be investing in HR programs or technologies. People are the only capital asset in your organization or the only asset in your organization that appreciates in value. If you're in manufacturing and you buy a piece of equipment, it's worth less the minute you install it in the factory and every day that you run it than the day that you bought it. People are the opposite. People are the thing that really drives your business forward. They're the thing that helps you cope with all of the change that we are all experiencing every single day in the world around us. Um, and if you can tell a story that ties all of the great strategic HR work you do back to the PM for the folks who look at spreadsheets and who think about people not as people maybe, but as lines on those spreadsheets or who think about a broader business conversation about P&L impact, then you're going to be really well positioned to tell a story about how your work and how your investment truly is a strategic part of the business. No, no, it's a really good point. Sir. And I actually, I'm, re- I'm a bit of an optimist. So I, I think that Stacey may well get to her target in 2025. I think I think that HR is is kind of on that journey from what its traditional role as a support function to be a strategic partner. We're certainly seeing that in many organizations that we work with at Insight 222. And and I think that 
pandemic probably accelerated that a little bit. But there's so much happening in you know in the world at the moment um, that, that are, are confronting organisations. But a lot of them are people challenges at the end of the day, and and organisations need their HR functions to step up and be that strategic partner to the business. Flip side of that, what do you think marketing functions can learn from HR? Oh, that's another great question. Um, I think that both HR and marketers, in a way, can be professional communicators. If I think about um, like where internal communication sits between our two teams, right? Oftentimes, it's a responsibility of the marketing team or it's a responsibility of HR, or it's a really great opportunity for a partnership between the two. I think also about things that I care and and talk about a lot, um, something like accessibility in your organization, right? You might be thinking of that from an HR perspective, your marketing team should be thinking about that from a marketing perspective. Your product team might even be thinking about that from a product perspective. It's a great opportunity for you to build these like cross-functional partnerships and tackle things maybe with your friends in marketing like internal comms or accessibility or employer branding is another great um, opportunity. I've seen really interesting employer branding work that I've thought, hey, that you know, that maybe isn't our employer brand, but I can look at that and I can understand, hey, there's a opportunity here for me to make that look more like my marketing for prospects and customers who might be seeing that marketing right in line with the marketing that I am doing in LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn doesn't care if your organization is buying an ad for an employer brand message or the next organization is buying an ad for a commercial message, right? It's going to be showed right in line uh, next to each other. And I think it's a great opportunity to, you know, take it, take a look at that and take a look at sort of like a fresh perspective on how we communicate about our business and how we communicate to the market and how we communicate about what we care about and really translate that into um, a great opportunity, I think, for marketing. We also have the unique opportunity at Hi Bob to do some Thing we call drink our own Merlot, which is, hey, we're an HR technology company. We we should have some pretty great HR, and I'm I'm really happy to say that we do. Um, and also, we get to use that in our marketing. So I actually get to learn a lot about our people and culture programs from my friends in HR. Um, a because some of them are joint initiatives, but B because they're also part of the way that we tell our story to the market, and we represent the value of Hi Bob as not just technology, but also as all of these great ideas and all of these great resources and all of these great programs that we are, you know, piloting in our organization and we're excited to tell the market about as well. This episode is sponsored by HiBob. Global companies often have dozens of HR tech apps that very few people use. HiBob's vision was to create an HGM suite that everyone working at a global company actually wants to use. In fact, it's not unusual for 70 to 80% of employees to connect to Bob on a regular basis. HR professionals use Bob for greater oversight and visibility of the business. Managers use Bob for insights and resources to lead people more effectively. Employees use Bob for tools and information to connect, be productive and grow. Finance uses Bob for business information and analysis. And IT uses it for orderly task management and accessing people data. Go to HiBob.com, that's H-I-B-O-B.com, and meet Bob, the modern HR platform that offers HCM for everyone. So 
Sarah, we're going to talk about um, one of the topics you mentioned right at the start that you're passionate about, pay equity and pay transparency. And, and I know you gave a, a, a fantastic recent talk at the Unleashed show um, around that. Um, and obviously you mentioned that it was a, as a real passion as well. C- can you share what inspired you to, to delve into this topic? So I think the first thing is I have been a pay equity advocate for a really long time. And, you know, most of the legislators that you talk to who think about things like pay transparency laws or opportunity transparency laws, having to be transparent about how promotional decisions are made in your organization. They're coming at it uh, not just because they think that the transparency is important, but ultimately to try and crack the nut on pay equity. Uh, Pay equity or pay inequities are things that continue to plague us as a society, whether it's between genders or races or other um, protected classes or characteristics. Um, These are things that continue to sort of haunt us in the world of work at a time when many of us in, you know, the end of 2023 here would maybe hope that we have moved past these things, right? So legislatures are coming at this from the the goal of, hey, how do we address pay inequities, or you know, how do we how do we make it harder for people to get away with pay inequities in the workplace? Well, we make things more transparent. Uh, sun sunlight's the best disinfectant. I think that's the old saying. Um, it's a great opportunity to to look at you know things from from that perspective. Um, so I think about you know pay transparency not just I think about it as the right thing to do, but I also think about it as something that I know is is placing because of this compliance motion, a lot of pressure on organizations to understand what they need to do. Um, and it's also a topic that I think is um, like fundamentally misunderstood by many, many, many people, uh, especially employees, uh, when they read the news about pay transparency. So, you know, you see all of this great news coverage about this this compliance motion or about these new laws coming into effect in places like New York City or the EU's new sal- uh, salary transparency directive. And you think maybe mistakenly that pay transparency means that you're going to be able to log into your company's website or or see a list of everyone's name and their face and their pronouns and their job title and their pay online. Um, and while there are organizations who choose to do that, either from a values and employer branding perspective or because like the U.S. federal government, they're actually legally mandated to, um, that's not usually what pay transparency means. Pay transparency is a spectrum. And I think that educating folks and helping folks figure out where do they fall on that spectrum of pay transparency is a really, really like interesting and thought provoking question that goes way beyond, you know, what is the law that I need to comply with and starts to talk about things that are really important conversations. What is my company culture? Like what is our comfort, our own comfort internally in discussing pay? Which regions do I operate in? How do those laws complement each other or challenge each other? What am I going to need to do to be ready for each of those things in turn to come into play? in my organization? And then how do I, you know, do something like educate my employees or educate my managers who sometimes don't know how pay decisions are made internally um, and educate them and and make it a productive conversation that really does help us move the needle on adjusting how people think about pay and ultimately adjusting or or removing pay inequities in the workplace. No, it's really good. And, and you know, and, and obviously there is more legislation coming in, which is, I think, a good thing. It does cause challenges for organizations. But, you know, if there's legislation, then hopefully we start to see change moving forward as well. But 
Let, let's move away from the compliance side of discussion and focus more on the business outcomes of, of pay transparency. You mentioned a, f- a few of those, uh, I think, there, Sarah. But what would you say are the main benefits of, of transparent pay practices for the organization itself? So I think that there's certainly, you know, the the aspect of compliance, right? You don't want to face a fine or a penalty or bad press. So uh, in the U.S., for example, in New York, you can be fined up to two hundred and fifty thousand American dollars for not posting a salary range on a job description. Colorado recently levied a set of fines, I think, that were uh, many tens of thousands of dollars for their own uh, compliance uh, in this same area. In the U.K., if you fail to report your gender pay gap, you you actually get named and shamed on a government website saying these organizations failed to comply with the law. Um, your gender pay gap also gets reported when you do report it. So if you have a really significant gender pay gap that you're not working to address, well, your company name's going up on a website and uh, you know that's public information if you have more than 250 employees uh, in the UK. And it's certainly something that contributes to the discussion about pay transparency from an organizational standpoint. You know, a lot of the reasons and that, that the conversation in this area does focus on compliance sometimes is because when you do talk to business stakeholders, one of the main ways that you bring their attention to this topic is by saying, hey, this comes with you know a compliance requirement. Hey, this comes with a potential financial or you know bad press penalty for our organization that you do not want to be in the business of incurring. Um, then Though it becomes a conversation about like why beyond compliance is this beneficial for our organization, which is what I think your question is trying to get at, right? So for us, a lot of the conversation in the US where I'm based um, talks about how this is the new normal for candidates. Candidates want to know what a position pays before they apply, right? Work is like the exchange of labor for hopefully fair compensation. And if you go by that definition, you want to know that the job that you're applying for is going to pay you enough to support your family and pay your bills. And, you know, like it's going to remunerate you for the work that you do appropriately and fairly and competitively. Right. So you want to know. And then the conversation moves on to the employees within your organization, because there's a lot of sensitivity like, okay, I'm going to post, you know, again, for example, a a pay range for a job out in the wild, right? Candidates are going to be able to see it. But, oh, gosh, what happens when an employee in my organization sees it as well? Well, employees also increasingly demand transparency into what they are paid and how their pay is fair. Um, An employee of mine in the UK recently said to me, I don't care what other people make. I care that my pay personally is fair. And I saw an incredible stat from the folks at Vizier, which is a people analytics company that said that a majority of employees would change jobs. They would take the same job for the same pay at a different company tomorrow if more transparency came along with that job change. So if you run a more transparent organization, you could you could offer them the exact same job with the exact same pay and they would come over, right? That's a huge risk to your organization if suddenly you're saying, not only is this impacting our ability to attract candidates, but it's also impacting our ability to keep great folks in our organization. And it's just about, again, being transparent. So I think that 
you know, whether you look at it from the the hiring and turnover perspective or you look at it from a productivity perspective. I saw a study out of the US that said that being more transparent about pay actually decreases people's worry about their pay fairness um, and it can lead to increased productivity because they don't have to take that cognitive load that they were applying to worrying about their their pay or worrying about if it was fair or how it compared, right? And they can apply that to work instead. There's also, you know, studies that say that pay if you're transparent with your employees about pay at their job level and the next job level up, that they will actually work harder for a promotion because suddenly they see the salary progression opportunity that's available to them in the organization. And they say, hey, I want to work towards my next role being at HiBob as opposed to being at a different company, right? So there's lots of really great reasons why you should adopt a more transparent approach to pay and and compensation and rewards more generally in your organization as you try and move forward in this conversation with your business stakeholders about you know what it, hey what is what is this issue really about yeah i mean essentially it's it's the right thing to do but it's also the right thing to do when it comes to competing for for talent yeah. as, as you said you know both you know whether you want trying to attract people to your organization or you're trying to retain the best talent as well so a really important element. And and Sarah, from your experience as, as being non-binary, you know, how does pay transparency intersect with the sort of the broader issues of, of diversity, equity and inclusion in the in the workplace? Yeah. So I think the first thing that's kind of interesting is you mentioned the UK um, pay gap reporting, right? Which asks you to report if you have more than 250 employees, the gender pay gap between men and women in your organization. If you employ folks like me, we are not counted. Fascinating. Um, I think that when I talk to um, really forward-thinking HR folks, you know, they're they're thinking about okay, legal compliance is one thing, but I actually want to understand what my own data says about how we are complying or how we are are becoming more equitable as an organization, or where we might have things that we need to address. So, you know, for example, you might look at your pay equity reporting internally today by just men and women. I might encourage you to expand that to say, hey, how does this impact folks who identify as trans- is, uh, non-binary? You might have, um, depending on the data that you collect or that you ask your employees to self-ID, you might have more information available to you. You might know if folks identify as trans and you might be able to see if there is an impact on their pay. Uh, statistically, there usually is. Um, you might be able to look at uh, race, uh, religion, ethnicity, um, age, uh, in some places, in some companies in the US, uh, your political affiliation is a protected class, we call it, or a protected characteristic in the UK. Um, there are lots of different things that if you are collecting data or you're encouraging your employees to tell you a little bit more about themselves, you can use that data for really good reasons, right? And you can start to understand, hey, how does pay equity stack up when I start to look across different marginalized groups? This I, There's this idea of like intersectionality, that all of these different aspects of diversity, they come into play. And sometimes they come into play in a negative way that contributes to like marginalization of these folks, right? It's why we have different equal pay days for women in general versus maybe black women or um, women who identify 
identify as uh, Native American or indigenous. Um, it's why there are really staggering statistics about the disparities in pay that exist between uh, people of color of all genders and uh, folks who identify as white. There are lots of different there's there's a reason that I know that there's disparities between folks who identify like me as being trans and folks who identify as cisgender. So a lot of different ways to cut that data. And there's a lot more beyond just the government requirement for a gender pay gap report um, that you can go into once you have that data in your organization and you're start you're able to access it and really some make some interesting sort of like or understand it in a more interesting way. And I guess the the more data of this nature that you collect, the more important that, you know, not just for pay transparency, but for any reasons that you might use that data, you've got to create that trust with with the with the employees that you that you're collecting that data from because political affiliation, for example, you know, it's not it's not a traditional question that that, that would be asked in a in a survey and, and you might well, you know, and then the question might be for employees, well, why are you why asking, asking that? So yep. So you've got to be very clear as to this is the data we want to collect. This is why we're going to collect it. And this is the potential benefits to you and other employees, I guess. Yeah, there's data that you're in different geographies required to collect. So in the U.S., for example, EEOC reporting um, asks uh, you to identify your gender, although I'm only offered male, female and prefer not to say. I would prefer to say you just won't let me. Uh, It asked me about my uh, race and ethnicity and it asked me about about my disability and veteran status. Um, so that data, for example, is a legal requirement. Data outside of that, for example, is something that you need your employees to volunteer to you. And that's where that culture of trust comes in. So if you want your employees to update uh, their employee record in a system like Bob and tell you how they identify, you need to be really clear with them what you are doing with that data. Because you're right. If you're asking someone to volunteer that information about themselves, they want to know that that data is going to be used for good and not for evil. So you might talk to them about the pay equity analyses that you would like to run and what that will mean for your organization when you have that data available. You might also just talk to them about what it means for employee engagement surveys. Wouldn't it be great if you could take your employee engagement data and understand if people of color in your organization were having a dramatically different employee experience than others? Wouldn't it be great if you could understand if non-binary employees or, or members of the LGBTQIA plus community we're having a dramatically different experience of your organization, right? It's it's really powerful, data-driven, strategic HR work, but it does require you to create that dialogue and that trust with employees. And you're never going to get to 100%. You can't require that people tell you these things, right? There's always going to be pr- people who prefer not to say, which is why it's critical to, to offer that as an option. Um, but for the folks who do and the folks who sort of trailblaze, you, w- you want to really offer them the ability to see that data used for this interesting statistical analysis that ultimately benefits them in some way. If you're going to say, hey, you know, my LGBTQIA plus employees are having not so great of an employee experience than than other folks. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to get your ERG involved? How are you going to get programs off the ground to make sure that they feel just as supported as other employees in your organization? It's a really great conversation starter, but it does have to be a conversation. It can't just be something that you say, hey, yeah, tell us about yourself. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy, 
It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. When undergoing the analysis, what are some of the insights that you've seen organizations uncover um, in this area? I do think that pay equity or pay transparency, right? It's a it's a good reason to kick off the type of pay gap analysis that we're talking about, right? Um, whether you're looking at just your market competitiveness of your pay, lots of organizations are shocked to learn that, especially because the market right now is a little bit um, weird, depending on the geos that you recruit in. Some some market movement is really fast for hot jobs right now or hot skills right now. Some jobs, not so much. There's been much more stagnation, right? So if you're thinking about like a competitive, like a market competition analysis, right? And you start looking for the first time about at um, data about what your competitors for talent or what other companies of your similar size and industry are paying for similar jobs, you might be surprised to find that you have a pretty big gap to the market. And you need to make not only an adjustment to the range that you are paying for the jobs in your organization, but also where your employees fall within that range. Because it's not enough to just say like, oh, we hired someone in at 50K. Now the the job costs 100K to recruit you know, the next person into that role. You have to adjust the person who's making 50 to keep pace with the market if you're going to bring in somebody else at 100, right? Or if you don't want to lose that person to a higher paid job other in another place. Then there's the internal analysis, right? The pay fairness and, and pay equity. You want to look at you know all of those different cuts that we talked about. How does your pay compare across different locations? How does it compare across different seniority levels against different protected classes or characteristics? Um, how does it compare you know across genders? How does it compare um, between uh, levels of tenure in the organization? You know, are we effectively rewarding someone who has been here a long time and who has been really loyal to the organization? How does it compare between managers and subordinates? There's this idea of like salary compression, right? That's either where you bring in somebody who's highly paid from the market and you have folks in the same job who are paid less because of historically where the market had been when you hired them, um, or because their increases haven't kept pace with that market movement. Or there's the idea of like, hey, I have a bunch of individual contributors who are making more than their manager, right? What do I do about all of these different scenarios? There's a lot of different things that um, an analyst friend of mine called it like the warts of your current uh, pay program. Um, and for a long time, there was like an, a defense legally that said like, hey, yeah, we never looked at, at our pay and how it compared. And therefore, we can't be held accountable for um, all of these warts in our, our pay program. That's no longer an affirmative defense, though, friends. Like, so, you know, do the analysis, understand what you've got, and then understand what it's going to cost to potentially make adjustments. Most of the companies we work with, they they don't do one adjustment and call it good, right? They do a series of adjustments over over time, right? They're trying to bring people in line with the market over time. They're trying to adjust um, uh, pay internally over time. 
They're trying to shift their their market position for certain roles over time, right? But figure out what it's going to cost to adjust. And then again, it's a great conversation to have with your business stakeholders to help them understand, hey, you know, we're preparing to be more transparent about pay in the organization. We have uncovered a couple of things that we need to take care of. You know, here are a couple of scenarios for how we would take care of those as an organization. Um, and here's what we think that's going to cost. That's a really great strategic, again, strategic HR conversation that you can be having with your C-suite, with your board of directors to help them understand that, you know, pay transparency isn't just like a light switch that happens one day. There's a lot of work that goes into preparing for it and addressing some of those, you know, so-called warts in your in your compensation program. What are some of the common challenges that that organizations face when they're trying to implement pay transparency? And and, and how have you how how can they overcome these hurdles? How have you seen some of the the companies you work with at, at High Bob on, 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 you know overcome those hurdles? I definitely think communication is one of the biggest ones. If you leave out the step of training your managers, whether it's to explain your pay philosophy, which is sort of the the statement about how pay decisions are made in your organization, um, or you don't train them about how to make data-driven pay decisions themselves when it comes to something like the annual compensation cycle, um, or you just don't train them about how to answer questions from employees. I always say, like, employees don't write you an email that's like, hi, um, you know, in three weeks time, I'm going to come to my one-on-one and I'm going to ask a lot of uncomfortable questions about my pay and how it's determined. And so you have three weeks to get your ducks in a row with HR and come back prepared to answer my question. That is not how that happens, friends. Like your employees show up to your managers every single day and ask questions. That's and it's your manager's job to be your first line to answer those questions back to employees. And I promise you that you can fundamentally break your employee's perception of the organization if you get a manager who flubs that question because it will fundamentally change the way that the employee views their manager and it will fundamentally change the way the employee views your organization and your readiness and your your fairness and your ability to talk about sensitive topics like this. So train, train, please train your managers, right? Educate your employees, absolutely. Train your managers, definitely. Make sure that your managers can answer questions like what the organization's compensation philosophy is. Make sure you give your managers, if you can, access to data about how their um, employees compare to the ranges or how even ranges are determined in your organization if you have ranges for every single job. I know at High Bob, for example, like when I go to do our um, our biannual salary uh, cycle, I can actually see the range for each of my employees' uh, jobs and where they fall within the range. And I can make adjustments based on their position in range. I can see their performance information right in line with that. You know, I can I can see all of the data that I need all in one place place to understand, okay, how am I going to make a fair, data-driven, unbiased decision about pay? Um, And then how am I going to communicate it to the employee? Like, what information am I allowed to share with the employee? Am I allowed to tell them where they are in their their range? Am I allowed to tell them what their range is? Am I allowed to tell them what the range above theirs is in the same job family? You know, what, what information am I allowed to give them? And how can I best use that to have a really productive conversation with the employee so that pay doesn't become this like emotional, scary, intimidating 
topic to talk about, but rather pay is like the sort of like springboard for a great conversation about performance or a great conversation about career opportunity and career progression. Yeah. And we've both talked about the importance of communication. You particularly, you, you know, even in that last answer there, Sarah, you know, are there specific communication strategies, maybe some examples that that, that you've seen have worked in organizations that they that they should maybe that, that listeners can think about and maybe apply? Yeah. So um, if, for example, you have operations in a state that requires you to post um, a job range on your uh, job descriptions or a pay range on your job descriptions, right? Um, don't just post it to LinkedIn. Uh, you'd be surprised how quickly your employees are going to find that. Um, have a great conversation ahead of time to write an employee, write a, write a internal communications memo. Hey, managers, this is happening, right? Hey, employees, this is happening. We are, we operate in New York city, California, Colorado, whatever state, Massachusetts, right? Whatever state you are required to post in, um, we will be posting, uh, jobs going forward with pay ranges attached. These pay ranges are the same as the ones that we use for you internally. And if you have any questions about it, here's who to go to, right? Go to your manager. Then make sure that your managers are given the training about, hey, an employee comes to me and says, it says the range for this job is, you know, $76,000 to $85,000 and I make $73,000. What's happening, right? How do you have that conversation effectively with that employee? Uh, How do you not just say, uh, let me shoot, let me get back to you or let me call HR to get back to you, right? What do you actually say when that happens to you as a manager, right? How do you transition it into a conversation about, hey, maybe this employee isn't performing up to expectations and you use it as a, a reinforcement touch point for what they need to do better in order to you know, progress in the organization. If your uh, employee comes to you and says, hey, uh, my, again, like my... Um, my right to discuss pay in the U.S. if I'm an individual contributor is federally protected. So I compared notes with my individual contributor friends and Sally makes more than me. How do you turn that into a conversation not about what the employee and Sally make, but about how your organization sets pay, how um, how you can uh, compensate people, how you can move people through a range, how you can you can reward them for something like tenure, for example, or you know how maybe skills are different. And this is a great opportunity for you to learn project management, which Sally you know has has on you know in her toolbox already. Um, how do you make it a conversation about what can we do to get you to the next step or or to understand, hey, you know, what is it besides pay that motivates you in the organization? There's a million different things I think that you can do with your managers to try and have a more productive discussion. But I think it does come down to like actually building out a plan, right? It's not going to be a light switch. You you need to do the work ahead of time to understand if you have those warts, right, that we talked about, right? You need to adjust make adjustments, right, to the things that you have found, right? Close gaps, right? You need to make a plan for what's going to happen when you set these things live. You need to make a plan for having this great training available for your managers or any sort of educational opportunity happening for your employees. You need to have a plan for hiring managers. What happens if a candidate comes in and says, yeah, you know, I know that your your role says 76 to 85, but I'd like to make 130, 
what do you do then? Right? Like, how do you, how do you make sure that they're having really productive conversations about pay in the recruiting process and the performance process and the, in the annual review cycle, whatever it is. Um, there's a lot of different opportunities for you to, to make that again, just a really productive conversation as opposed to something that's going to set them off on the wrong foot. So Sarah, penultimate question, you know, as I said, uh, near the start, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are HR leaders, HR professionals. Many of those might be thinking, okay, we need to get better around pay transparency. Um, if you could, if you could give maybe your main insights or best practices for, for organizations that are just getting started towards this journey to pay transparency, what would they be? Sure. So the first one I would say is um, determine your pay philosophy. That's the statement about how pay decisions are made in your organization. You'd be surprised how many organizations operate without a clear statement of what their philosophy towards pay is. How are you rewarding people? How do you make decisions? Right. The next is get some data. Uh, there's great HR reported sources of salary survey data, which can tell you, you know, what companies like yours are paying for similar jobs. We have a great partnership with a company called Mercer and there's others out there. Right. But if you can't afford that or you're just starting on this journey, there are also great resources online that your employees, by the way, already have access to um, where you can just Google and get a pretty reputable answer about what jobs are paying. Take three of those free sources, whether you use a salary.com or a Payscale or Glassdoor or LinkedIn or Indeed or you know wherever you are looking at that potential information and average them together and use that as a data point for how you make data-driven, you know, market rate-driven compensation decisions. Don't just rely on your managers saying, hey, yeah, I think uh I think it, I think 90 K, um, or don't just rely on, on asking candidates, what do they want to be paid now? And using that as your benchmark, right? Um, use some data, whether, whether it's free or you have the opportunity to buy something in, in the salary survey, uh, world to be able to benchmark your jobs against, right? Some data is better than no data. Create a range, you know, have ranges for your jobs or at least broadbands in terms of like maybe what all the levels in your organization look like. You know, how do they compare? How do they increase as you go up in your seniority in the organization? Right. Set set up some frameworks about, you know, what do what are the jobs in our organization and what should we be paying for those jobs? Um, and then finally, figure out what level of transparency is right for you when you've done your homework, when you've done the the gap analysis and when you've done the evaluation, the market pricing activity, right? Figure out, okay, we know what our compliance requirements are, right? We've talked to our legal team or our outside counsel. We know what we need to do. And now let's talk about what can we do as we move towards transparency in addition to that, to be able to say, okay, everything we do, just like we have a compensation philosophy, let's have this philosophy about our transparency. Everything we do is going to be guided by, you know, for example, our organization believes really strongly in career pathing conversations, right? And so we do want to show employees not just the range for their job, but the next job in their job family. Great. Use that as your North Star and use that to guide how you're going to implement all the other things that we talked about. Great communications plan, level setting with you know training for managers and employees, right? Data access in your organization. That means that you got to show employees, you know, this and this thing over here, right? You got to give managers the same level of data access, right? It's got to be on demand. It's got to be live. You don't want it in a spreadsheet. You want it to be in a system where it's secure, where they can see just the information you want them to have, not the information you don't want them to have. Um, and 
and take the time to really think about, hey, what is that? What does that look like for my organization and what's right for us, not just what is everybody else doing? No, no, some, some really good guidance there. We're now going to sh- shift to the the last question, which is the question we're asking everyone on this series, which um, Hi Bob is, is, is kindly sponsoring. As we approach the end of 2023, what do you think will be the key priorities for, for HR as, as we head into 2024? Um, I hope that like you, uh, we will see that 55 in 25 come much sooner than 25. I think you're right. The pandemic really accelerated um, sort of folks' understanding of the strategic role of HR, but that number was still you know, 50% in this year's survey of, of survey respondents saying that their HR function is viewed as strategic. I think that it is incredibly important that we move the needle on that and that we use things like pay transparency to to have a strategic discussion with the folks uh, in our C-suite or at our board of directors level about HR's impact on the business. I also think that next year, if I think about all the things that are happening in the world right now, and I could give sort of one wish list item for my work with HR practitioners, it will be that folks wake up and realize that they do not or they should not wait for laws to protect their marginalized employees. If you have employees like me who identify as non-binary or trans, uh, laws in many different countries around the globe are making it increasingly difficult for us to um, find gainful employment, to uh, be free of discrimination, uh, to be safe, uh, to be well protected in our organizations or in our homes um, and in the places where we live. Um, I would encourage you to not wait for the law to catch up with where hopefully we agree society is going um, and for you to take the opportunity to think about how, whether it's the folks who identify as trans or it's other marginalized communities in your workplace, how you can be the best employer and the best partner that you possibly can to those folks to make sure that they have things like access to healthcare, um, access to uh, resources that help them with their mental health, um, make sure that you are putting policies in place to protect them from uh, physical or emotional harassment, uh, make sure that you are protecting their safety, that you are uh, protecting them if they need to move because they are located in a place that has decided to, to become inhospitable to them or to their children. Uh, you have a tremendous opportunity to be the HR leaders of tomorrow who who set um, sort of a stake in the ground and said, actually, you know, it's not about what we have to do. It's what we should do going forward. No, I love that point. As I said, you know, I think more organizations need to be proactive about topics like this rather than just, as you said, wait for legislation to come along. Sarah, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for, for being a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Can you let listeners know how they can find you on social media uh, and find out more about the work that you're doing at High Bob and find out more about High Bob? Sure. If you'd like to say hi to Bob, please visit us at highbob.com. If you'd like to say hi to me, um, you can find me on LinkedIn at slash Sarah Liz Reynolds, or you can find me on the artist formerly known as Twitter for as long as that lasts um, at Fair Pay Monster, uh, where I will be tweeting about pay equity as the ship goes down. <laughs> 
I, I love your Twitter hand, uh, Twitter X uh, handle. I, don't know I what like we're that. These days. The art, no, no, the artist formerly known as Twitter. I think that's a very good way of describing it. Yeah. I wonder how long it will be uh, afloat. So uh, maybe, maybe we, maybe we get to do another episode of this in maybe a year, two years' time. We can, uh, we can reminisce about what was Twitter. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Sarah, thank you so much. And uh, I know you're just about to go out on holiday as well. So I wish you a good holiday as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and a huge thanks again to Sarah Reynolds for joining us today. If you did enjoy the episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel so that we can keep producing the show. For more from us at Insight222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Until then, take care and stay well.